Morning. Morning. Better? My name is Derek. I'm the pastor. Welcome to Easter Sunday. Can we hear it? Um, We decided to do the sermon first. I was going to say get it out of the way, but that sounds weird. Um, So I'm going to teach, and then when we get done with the teaching, we're going to share in the communion together, the Lord's Supper. I'll direct you at the end of the sermon for that. And following that, we're going to sing our way out of here. And if was anybody here for the March night of worship? Anybody? A couple people in here? All right. Um, kind of what we're going for at the end of the service today is that sort of thing, where it's all in, very excited, slightly unhinged worship. All right? Are you in? You're not in. I can tell already. This is not going to work. But uh, so we'll see how that goes. Um, everything I'm going to say today is going to lead us into a series that we're starting next month, and so I'll share a little bit about that as we get into the, the text today. Are you ready? John 20, verses 19 through 22. It's uh, Easter, so I thought we'd talk about the resurrection. <laughs> it's always implied, but we'll talk about it today uh, directly. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. Uh, let's pray. And then we'll read the story. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, the reason that we are here. Thank you for um, the resurrection. And as we look into the weight of what that means, um, help us to gain a new and fresh perspective um, on what that means for our lives right here and right now uh, in this place uh, that we are living and working and doing life. Uh, Teach us about resurrection today and encourage us And it's in your name that we pray, and everyone said, amen. Now, the resurrection is understood. It's very familiar to us because, A, we live in the West. B, uh, we're kind of a church. We we understand at least the church language enough to, when you hear the word resurrection, we get that. It's very familiar to us. But for the first disciples, which you'll see in a moment, it was very unfamiliar to them, very surprising. For us, the resurrection has to work hard to surprise us. For them... They were not expecting this, and so uh, that may come as a surprise, but they just weren't counting on anything like that happening. And so you have to enter into the story today with the understanding that the first disciples of Jesus, this is not what they expected. And so it's a really interesting... um, Now, there are lots of resurrection stories in the Gospels. I've chosen just a few verses here in John chapter 20. Are you there, by the way? Can we do it? All right, I'm going to read the whole text, and then we're just going to teach back through Uh, the different parts. Here we go. Verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, which is what you say when you walk through a locked door. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed When they saw the Lord again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. Interesting. And said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week. This is the second time that John used the phrase, has used the phrase, the first day of the week in this chapter. And it's purposeful. There's a a meaning. There's There's a reason why he said the first day of the week. Now, the first day of the week in the ancient culture was Sunday. Ring a bell? It was a work day. It was a working day. 
So business is happening, commerce is happening, trade is happening, people are buying and selling goods, the streets are filled with life, people are just going about their business as normal. It's not the same as our Sunday. In the ancient world, Chick-fil-A is open on Sunday. (laughs) Amen? Now he tells us that on this Sunday, the disciples have locked themselves in a house. They're not working, they're locked into their home. And he says that they're locked in their home because they're afraid for fear of the Jews, he says. Now, these men are Jewish themselves. They're not afraid of Jewish people. But there's a couple of reasons why they are afraid, at least at this moment. One is that Jesus, their main teacher, their rabbi, their discipler, their leader, their master, was crucified on a cross just days earlier and buried in the tomb. And so uh, there's, there's this, perhaps this search going on for anyone associated with Jesus at this point. Now, Rome turned Jesus back over to the Jewish people. They felt like, and we have the words of Pilate to say, where he says, I, I, don't, I don't know what he's done wrong. You do with him what you want. Because you know the platform of Jesus, the main platform of Jesus was, it's very controversial, love God, love your neighbor. It's amazing, isn't it? Very dangerous platform. But nevertheless, he dies on a cross And again, Rome sort of backs away and says, whatever, you take him, do with him what you want. So now perhaps they're searching for anyone who's associated with him, his disciples, they're looking for for him. But the biggest reason is this. Jesus, his body's not in the tomb, which is a problem. Because Rome put guards in front of the tomb because there were rumors circulating. They went to Rome, the the Jewish people went to Rome and said, look, the disciples are going to go steal the body, so you need to guard the tomb. So they had this idea that the, the, the disciples would steal the body out of the tomb to keep this fantasy, this dream, this idea alive that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so in their heads, the disciples were going to go and steal the body and I guess walk around with Jesus like sort of an ancient weekend at Bernie's kind of thing with this. <laughs> he just said that. Um, Your laughter proves how dumb the idea is. Um, But this is what they thought was happening. So they put the guards in front of the tomb for that very reason. And so uh, when they find out that the body's not there, now they're searching for Jesus, or they're searching for the people associated with Jesus. And so they're all sitting in this house afraid. Now here's something else that's interesting. In the decades before and after Jesus, there were dozens and dozens of mess- messianic movements in the Middle East. People would come along and self-proclaim themselves as the Messiah, the Savior, the Promised One. And the fate of all of those movements, the fate of the leader of all of those movements was the same. They died. They were executed, exiled, killed. And when your Messiah dies, you basically did one of two things. You found another one which historically what they would do is if your Messiah died, the guy you were following, they would find a relative of the dead, the dead one and elevate him to the status or the position of the Messiah. Or, and this is what most people did, or you just left well enough alone and you went on with your life. A hundred years after uh, the life of Jesus, the whole anticipation for a coming Messiah was dropped. No one expects that anymore. And so these were your two options. Find another one, or just forget about it altogether. 
And so we have this scene where the disciples of Jesus are in the same situation where they're having to wrestle with the question, what do we do now? And possibly they are trying to figure out how they can go back and reclaim the past, maybe reclaim their jobs as tax collectors or the fishing jobs that they had or just doing the gigs that they left when they followed Jesus for the first time. They're left in this room, locked away in fear because they don't really know what's coming. They're struggling with how to put the pieces of their broken lives back together because, again, the man they had spent the last few years with, learning from him and putting their hope in him, was gone. And so they were afraid of the future. There's a fear of the future. And again, perhaps discussion on how they could re-enter the businesses and the trades that they had left behind. And so this meeting in a locked house was about perhaps how to rewind and go back to the way things were. And I think this is just, for me anyway, this is very interesting. I mean, if you just look at it, on the evening of the first day of the week, so this is Sunday, the first Sunday gathering of Christ-following people after the resurrection, so paraphrase, the first church meeting is based on confusion and hopelessness and fear. And then, the second part of the verse, it says that Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Say the word shalom. This is what Jesus says here. This is an ancient greeting that's used all the time among the Jewish people. It's a standard greeting, and it's announcing the peace of God and his rest on people. And it was also very appropriate for the disciples at this point because they're again just wrestling not just with the death and loss of a friend, but they're also wrestling with the reports that he is also alive. See, in the ancient world, resurrection is not something that you expected to happen, right? The word for resurrection in the Greek language is the word anesthesius, which we get the word anesthesia from. Uh, quick story. We had the Good Friday prayer service in here. Um, I was told to share this. It is awesome. Uh, all day Friday from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and all kinds of people came through throughout the day. Well, Jamie and I ran shifts. I'm telling the story, Jamie. Thank you. <laughs> we ran shifts in the back. He did the morning shift from 6 a.m. to like 11.30, and then I came in and took over the rest of the day. So I'm sitting in the back of the sound booth, and uh, we have classical music playing. The lights are low. We have the story of... Jesus going to the cross, scrolling on the screens. We had 14 stations of the cross around the room. People could come and just walk through each one and read the scriptures and so on. And you know what? After about three hours, you get a little tired. And um, so do you know the part of the story where um, Jesus is praying in the garden and his disciples fall asleep? Okay. You need to know that. So I'm sitting in the sound booth, and um, there's no one in here at the time, so I just sort of kicked back, and I just fell asleep. I fell asleep. True story. I wake up like 15, 20 minutes later, I don't know, two hours later, I don't know. And everything was gone. No. <laughs> I woke up, and I'm not making this up. I woke up, and on the screen it said, why are you sleeping? <laughs> Get up and pray that you may not be led into temptation. I was like, So resurrection, it's a short sermon, hang with me. My favorite story in the book of Acts comes from chapter 17 where Paul 
is standing before or among what was known as the Areopagus, this council of men in Athens that made all these key decisions about moral issues and truth issues and philosophy and whatever. And somehow Paul gets some stage time with these very famous men. I mean, Socrates stood before these men, men of Athens, if you know this phrase. Paul used the same phrase, actually, to these people, men of Athens. And Paul begins to share the story of Jesus and his resurrection with the Areopagus. Well, they are confused because they assume that he's talking about two gods. They say, who are these gods that he's talking about? One is Jesus, and one is Anastasis. One is resurrection. They're confused. You're talking about this Jesus, but also about this resurrection God. What are you talking about? And Paul says, no, no, this Jesus was raised from the dead. Completely foreign idea to them, which is why at the end of the story it says that they, they sneered at him. They laughed at him. They blew him off. He's crazy. And so resurrection, like when you said the word resurrection in the Greek culture and in the Roman culture, everybody knew that that was something that didn't happen. And this is fascinating. At the, uh, the, only, the only reports that the disciples had heard about the resurrection up to this point are from the women. Now, all four Gospels tell the resurrection story. And they're all very different. If you read all four back-to-back over and over in rapid fashion, you begin to notice that there are differences between the four resurrection stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of them have different angles than the others. Some actually sound like they're pushing back or against some of the other stories. They're very confusing, or they can be. Which, it's okay that they differ because um, there's, and this is a former youth minister story, but there's nothing more clearly untrue than when you have three teenagers at summer camp come into your office or your cabin one at a time privately and explain to you in detail where they were after curfew. And if all three come in privately and explain where they were after curfew and all three stories are exactly the same, what do you know? They made this up. They totally made this up. I mean, if the stories are like, we were here, then we were here, and then the moon was here, and the, the watch stopped working here, and we got lost here, and we, the tree tripped us up here, we, it's a lie. It's a total lie. And so sometimes when you're reading the Gospels, not just the resurrection stories, but the whole Gospels, all the stories in there, you begin to see, oh, Luke says it this way, Mark says it this way, John sort of emphasizes this, and Matthew doesn't say it that way at all. It, again, is just they're all telling the story from different angles and focusing on different aspects. And so the resurrection stories have the same kind of feel. But the two things that are in every resurrection story across the board are, one, that Jesus rose from the dead. That's a key part. But, two, that the first people to hear about the resurrection and the first people to share the story of the resurrection to the disciples, who, by the way, are locked themselves into a house, are the women. Which is very important because in the ancient world, a woman was not trustworthy in court or in life. That's the way they were viewed. And so uh, the second century Greek philosopher Celsus said it this way about Christianity. He said Christianity is a joke because, primarily because, the primary source of their story about the resurrection comes from women. And he said that we all know that women are hysterical. I don't say that. He says that. (laughs) But it's very insightful to me that all four gospel writers chose to include the part about 
the women sharing the news of the resurrection. Because if you're going to invent a story in hopes that people will believe it, you wouldn't use women as the primary source for your facts. But the gospel writers were so certain that something happened after the death of Jesus that they were totally fine with breaking all the social norms to record their history. How awesome is that? Women, can I get something out of you? But until the disciples saw Jesus themselves, they were doubtful and, of course, afraid. So when Jesus walks through the door, it was imperative that he greeted him with this phrase, peace be with you, because these men were at the moment not at peace at all. They were struggling with how they had spent the last few years of their lives. They were struggling with to be at peace with the way things were at the moment. Of course, they were struggling to be at peace about their futures, about what they would do next, because, again, they're all circled up, locked away in this house, saying, what do we do now? And they were certainly struggling to be at peace with their faith and with their God, and they were struggling to be at peace with purpose, whatever that was now. And then in verse 21, look at this. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I love this because with his words, at least, Jesus begins to move the disciples from fear to mission. He begins to try and unparalyze them, if that's a word, and move them towards direction and mission. He says, as the Father has sent me, these words are extraordinary, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. If you look back in Luke 4, you don't have to, I'll read it for you. This is Jesus standing in the synagogue, reading from the scroll of Isaiah, chapter 61. And this is what he says. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So when Jesus says, As the, Lord, as the Father has sent me, this is a nice you know, encapsulated picture of what that was about. That Jesus was sent by his Father into the world, and symbolically this Isaiah piece is about reversing things, taking things back to where they should be, reversing the fall of man. He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor because the poor don't have good news. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners because they're not free and to, ha- to give recovery of sight to the blind because they cannot see and to release the oppressed because they are locked away. It's unjust. And so symbolically this Isaiah passage is about God sending his son into the world to reverse the way things are. But of course in the, in the life of Jesus, Many of these things came true literally and physically as well. People received their sight. People were released and so on and so forth. And so here's Jesus telling the disciples that they weren't to sit here afraid, but that they were to join in on what God was doing through the world, through him, in the world, through him. And so I love the fact that Jesus now takes these disciples and invites them or pushes them out into the world to join God in his restorative work among people. Now, verse 22, because this is why you came today right here. And with that, he what? He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I don't know what your favorite resurrection story is, but mine is the one where Jesus blows in the face of the disciples. He breathed on them. Uh, Let me just share in short form what this is about. When John wrote his gospel, which he did late in his life, he based the entire writing on the story and the picture of creation. 
which is why his gospel begins with the words, in the beginning was the word, is how John begins his gospel. So particularly the Jewish readers would hear this or, or read this, and they would automatically go back to where? They would go back to Genesis, where the first words of Genesis are what? In the beginning, God created. And then we learn that God created through his words, that he said things and things happened, which is amazing because I say things and nothing happens. But God speaks land and water and people and vegetation and just life in general into existence. And so when John writes the words, in the beginning was the word, he begins his gospel with this creation-based story. And so again, the first readers and hearers and listeners would pick up on that. And then there are many uh, examples of this in his writing, but the other one is that he bases the entire gospel around eight different signs and miracles of Jesus. So there's, uh, let me just list them for you. Uh, There's turning the water into wine. These are in order. Uh, There's turning the water into wine. There's healing the official son who was sick and dying. There's the healing the man who could not walk. There's feeding the 5,000, walking on the water, healing the blind man, raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And then the final miracle is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. And what's interesting about, if you go back in the very first parts of John's gospel, when you start reading the stories of the miracles, the first two miracles John numbers, he says, and this was the first, and then he gets to the second one, he says, this was the second. So he doesn't do that for all, but what he's doing is starting the momentum of having the listeners or the readers count the miracles. Why else would he number them? You have to count. There's a reason, there's a purpose behind this. And so we get to the resurrection of Jesus or we get to the resurrection of Jesus' friend Lazarus, which is the seventh miracle. And the seventh miracle was a pretty amazing story. And the number seven in the Jewish line of thought means Sabbath. It's a symbol for Sabbath, which is the end of the creation story in Genesis. On the seventh day, God rested. Do you know this part of the story? That's what it means. So when you say the word seven or the number seven in the Jewish culture, they hear Sabbath. They hear rest. They hear you know, the end of the week. The eighth miracle was the resurrection of Jesus. The number eight in the Jewish system of thought doesn't mean anything. It really actually just means number one. It's like saying number one because it's eight days after the next or after the last Sabbath. And so Jesus was raised in the garden, which is where the first creation took place. It's so amazing. And so John numbers them. There are many more miracles that John uh, records. In fact, I love this last part of... Uh, his gospel in verse 25. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. I'm interested in knowing what those things are, but that comes later, I guess. But John only chose eight, very purposeful. He had a mission behind this, a directive, and it's for you and I to count and to see the theological message in in the resurrection of Jesus, which is basically this. And if you read John theologically, which I suggest you should, um, He is announcing that the resurrection of Jesus is bringing about a new creation. It's day one in a garden. Boom. Something new is happening. And then it says that Jesus breathed on them, which we're taking back to Genesis 2, verse 7, which says, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. It's symbolic of what this means. 
And so when Jesus did this odd thing of breathing on his disciples, he was breathing new life into each one of them. Because again, remember, they felt stuck. They felt like they were retreating. We've got to go back to where we were. We've got to pick up the pieces and do our best to move on. But then Jesus shows up, walks through a locked door, sits in front of them, and then breathes on them this symbol of I'm giving you life, new life. And there are many messages and lessons in the resurrection for us, but one of them is that God is making all things new, that the resurrection brings about new life. Uh, the best verse in the New Testament, in my opinion, about this is Paul's 2 Corinthians 5.17. says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And if you've been around here, I don't know, more than a week, we hear this verse a lot. And what's interesting is that Paul wrote his letters before the Gospels ever were written. So this theology that Jesus brings new life was on the table well before even John, Matthew, Mark, or Luke even wrote the stories. And so Paul says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It's a good translation for us, but the words he is a is not in the original language. It's just if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Very emphatic. If you're in a relationship with Jesus, you're new. And the old is gone and the new has come. We're starting a new series next month, really. The artwork is already behind me. What do you think? It's good. Uh, <laughs> you can still smell the paint this morning. Um, and what we're going to work through is the question, based on this verse, the question that's obvious is what, what is exactly God making new? What is it that he's exactly renewing? What is it that God is particularly making into a new creation in a person's life. What is that? What are those things? And you'll hear this a lot next month, but God wants to restore and renew every single corner of your life. And so we thought we would wrestle with that question. We've chosen four components of a person's life, the focus of a person's life. We'll talk about that. I love down here the framework, the internal framework of your life. We'll talk about that. This mindset, that's pretty easy to understand, the way that thinking, the way we think, the way we formulate our thinking in the world. And then my favorite is on the top right, the mission of your life, where you're going, what's the direction of where you're headed. God renews all of those things. He makes all of those things new and fresh. And so in prepping for the series, I sent out an email through Facebook to our church family and said, look, weigh in, I want to know what you think about this verse or if that's come true in your life. And uh, one of the responses I got was fantastic, and I, she gave me the uh, permission to share it with you, if that's okay, which I told her was good because it's already on the internet. Um, this is what she said. I feel that God has renewed me in several ways. As a great example, I went through an extremely hard period of time a few years ago when I was in a relationship with a very abusive man. He constantly put me down and made me feel that my dreams and callings were meaningless. That was one of the hardest times of my life, but in retrospect, it's been one of the biggest blessings because out of all that ruin and stress, I truly found myself. God revealed who I could really be in so many ways through that experience. He renewed me in every way. He healed my heart from the ache caused when I lost someone who, in spite of everything, I still loved. He renewed my soul 
which for so long was clouded by the fog that results from constant abuse. He renewed my mind by restoring my faith in people, love, and his truth. And he renewed my body, which was physically beaten and broken. Scars remain, both physically and emotionally, that remind me of that experience, but they also remind me of the greatness of my Savior, the one who heals. That's from this church family. It's not a download from sermonillustrations.com. Comes right out of this church family. I suspect there are more. But as a pastor, one of my roles is to hear the stories of people's lives being changed like this and to point to it and say, that is a resurrection. Does this make sense? That story, that person, that's a resurrection. So in closing, allow me to riff a few things about the resurrection. This may sound a little preachy, but are you ready? The driving message of the resurrection is this, that God, through the resurrected Christ, is renewing all things in the world, in the cosmos, and in people like you and me. The resurrection drives out all fear, and it replaces hopelessness and confusion. It announces that God has the power over life and death, and it it announces that he is in control of all things, and that he is turning the ship around, taking it all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when the world was as it should have been. When Jesus breathed on the disciples, as strange as that was, he was installing new life and new mission into each one of them. And they left that lowly, sad Sunday morning gathering, and they walked out into a world renewed by the grace and the power of God, taking the good news of the resurrection to every corner of the world, announcing what God can do in the lives of people, and they all died for it. And there's no question historically that the first Christians saw themselves as a resurrection people. Their message was simple. What God did for Jesus in the tomb, he will do for you in your life right now. The resurrection is not just a hope of what is to come, but it is also a reality of what God is already doing in your life. Yes, it's true. The resurrection of Jesus speaks life into an otherwise grim state of hopelessness at the fear of life beyond the grave. Yes, the resurrection of Jesus announces that God holds the power over life and death, and that through the resurrected Christ, you and I can live with confidence that we too will live beyond this life. Yes, the resurrection, it is true that it points, that Jesus, that it points us to Jesus and what will become of us at our own death. And that God is not playing a cruel joke with his creation, but that he longs to have us in a relationship with him forever. And I believe in the resurrected Jesus, and that he came and he died on a Roman cross and was buried in a borrowed tomb because he was poor, only to live and to breathe again three days later. Amen? And I believe that God offers the same promise to those who put their faith and trust in his son, who said in John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And I believe that we are to cling to that hope of eternal glory, particularly when times are hard in this life. But I also believe that the resurrection of Jesus was not some once-off novelty to simply show the world how powerful God is. But it was an announcement that God is in the business of renewing all things, including my life and yours. And I believe that I believe in the resurrection, and I believe that it is not just about the historical reality of what happened, but also about the spiritual reality of what is happening every single day in the lives of people. Resurrection isn't just something to believe in and a hope to cling to. It's also a way of living. The first Christians, without question, were a resurrection movement. 
And to walk this world with the vocation of bringing life to dead places is to get it. It's to understand the here and the now of Christ's work on the cross. Yes, there will be a moment in the future when Christ returns and all things are made new again, and we long for that day. But until then, resurrection is to be the sermon of the church, spoken through her dealings with the broken down world that we live in and lifted high by the promise of the scriptures that say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone, and the new has come. Friends, that is a resurrection. Amen? And that's it. Let's do communion, shall we? The way this works is uh, we have two tables in the front, we have two in the back. I'm going to pray. And we do this every single week if you're new with us, and it is a physical reminder of the life and the death of Christ. But as Paul says in his writings, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, which we do every Sunday, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I mentioned earlier that John uses the phrase the first day of the week twice in chapter 20 of his gospel. That phrase got used a lot in the New Testament, and the church began to meet on what was known the first day of the week. Now, again, for us, Sunday is not a work day, but for them it was. So they got up extra earlier. They did it late at night. But they became this group of people, this movement, this community that met on the first day of the week, the first day of the week, the first day of the week, which is biblical code for Easter. Easter loops. Easter comes around again and again and again. And so we are a resurrection people. We are a movement of people, a family of people who gathers on the first day of the week to celebrate the new creation and the new life that's found in Christ. And so Paul says, when you eat this bread and you drink this cup, that's what you're proclaiming, that God has come. He has died for us, rose again, and we do this until he comes again. I'm going to pray, and then you can move to one of the four tables at your own pace and then stay in the room because we have some songs to sing, okay? God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the focus of today. Thank you for your son and just this miracle of life after death and resurrection. And um, again, it's very familiar to us uh, as people who have grown up hearing that. Um, But God, make it fresh in our lives. Make it fresh in this church family and in the churches all throughout this city and throughout the world that we become each and every day a resurrection people who are proclaiming new life and new creation and we're spotting it and we're seeing it and we're saying that's a resurrection. God, I suppose that someone in the room today needs a new spirit, a new resurrection in their own life. And so I pray that your, your word today has encouraged and, um, and lifted them up in some way. God, help us cling to the stories that we read in the Gospels about this amazing event in history. But let it push us forward out into the world, sharing the same news, the same good news, the Gospel, that God renews and that you restore us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.